Tonight on the City Club of Idaho Falls, we listen back to the January 11th Forum featuring Rick Ardinger, Idaho Humanities Council Executive Director, for the forum titled, How the Humanities Feed Democracy. KISU supporters include the City Club of Idaho Falls. The City Club is an organization led by dedicated board members who donate their talents, time, and resources to make a difference in our community. With the monthly forums recorded and rebroadcast to KISU listeners throughout Eastern Idaho. Details are online at ifcityclub.com. Welcome to City Club. I thought I would share with you a news story, breaking news that I heard just as I pulled in a couple minutes ago. You may not have heard it. The congressional leaders have in fact decided to build the wall on the border with Mexico. They're going to build it with Hillary's emails because they can't get over that. <laughs> and just so you know. And in that same drive over, I talked to an old North Korean friend. I asked, how are you? He said, I can't complain. Now I've given you something to complain about, so my work here is done. Except for my great privilege to introduce an old friend, Rick Ardinger, whom Ed already talked about and described his many contributions to humanities and civic education. It's a really great pleasure for me to be able to introduce Rick Ardinger, whom I've known since the late 80s when he began working on different projects with the Idaho Humanities Council. Uh, he joined the staff as assistant director in 1991 and then took the helm as executive director in 1996. And his contributions to the humanities in Idaho and indeed across the nation have been have been described as beyond measure. If you think about the just the very few things that he's done here in our state, the creation of an annual summer institute for Idaho teachers attended each year through a competitive process by 30 or 40 teachers in an intensive week-long study on various subjects with notable scholars from around the country was well-founded uh, when Rick, in fact, decided to raise a million dollars to create an endowment so that that could be a sustainable event. Uh, those, those summer institutes, which have been very, very useful to high school teachers, and I see some in the audience who indeed have been beneficiaries, have included topics ranging from the Jefferson presidency and the Lincoln presidency, the Supreme Court, the Constitution, Mark Twain, John Steinbeck, running the gamut on all kinds of issues from government to literature, and you simply can't overestimate the great value to Idaho school teachers uh, because of that program that Rick initiated and funded. And then, of course, he has raised money in a very, very successful way to further endow other programs that will survive long into the future. His reach into the humanities doesn't stop at Idaho's borders. He has served as a member of the State Federation of Humanities Councils and served as chair for five years. This is the great council that provides instruction and advice to all the state humanities councils across the country. Uh, he's an enormously interesting person uh, for many, many reasons, including the fact that he and his wife, Rosemary, in 1976, uh, created the Limberloss Review, which was a small literary publication, which they then uh, they then converted into a press, the Limberloss Press, uh, a decade or so later. And you might not know it, but Rick is an aficionado of the old way of printing books, using the time-honored letterpress with lead ink and, get this, a century-old printing press. And when you see these little literary gems, you feel the type on the page. The bite of the type is wonderful. And among those whom he's published have been John Updike and Jim Harrison and many, many other luminaries who love to have their work published by Rick. And as he sets sail now, leaving the 
Idaho Humanities Council, after nearly 25 years of leading it as executive director, he'll put more time and energy into that press. He himself is an author. He's published uh, a number of books, including one on Idaho's centennial. He's published uh, poetry. He's edited anthologies, which have <clears throat> been the work of, of a number of Idaho's own best writers. And he's made his mark in so many ways, a way that we feel here at the City Club every time we meet because it was 10 years ago or so when we met to decide to create a city club and we first reached out to Rick Ardinger to ask for support from the Idaho Humanities Council. He provided terrific leadership and vision and encouragement and made sure that the Humanities Council would indeed provide an annual stipend to support this event. So it's a great pleasure for me to be able to introduce uh, a man whom I've known for 30 years, who earned an MFA from Idaho State University after traveling around the country, heading westward to find his destiny. Rick Ardinger has been the driving force of humanities in Idaho and civic education. Please give a warm City Club welcome to Rick Ardinger. Well, thank you. Now I can uh, cut my speech in half. Uh, I think they're, they're, uh, Ed and Dave have uh, actually. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to cover some of that uh, ground that they just covered a little bit ago. I want to thank the City Club uh, for inviting me here today uh, for just a talk a little bit about the humanities and civic education. I'm, as Dave said, I'm stepping away from the IHC uh, this month after uh, 26 years, uh, finishing up a few projects uh, for the council before the end of January, but I hope to be available uh, to the IHC uh, uh, for any special projects and things like that in the future. I'm not going anywhere, so I'm planning to, uh, you know, be here, and as Dave said, we'll continue to publish books and everything for, through Limberlost Press. Um, if it weren't for the Idaho Humanities Council, uh, we'd see a lot fewer public humanities projects uh, in Idaho's museums and libraries and schools, and uh, we'd see even less effort to support civic education. I believe in the IHC's mission, and I've greatly appreciated uh, the relationship that has developed between the IHC and the City Club of Idaho Falls. Um, the new director of the IHC, his name is David Pettijohn, uh, began work yesterday in Boise. So I should say at the beginning here that the opinions I express uh, are pretty much my own and uh, not, do not necessarily reflect those of the IHC. Um, but more than a decade ago, I remember, as David uh, said, uh, being here in Idaho Falls for another project, and I picked up the post register one morning, and uh, there was an editorial by Dave, and he said that uh, he needed to, uh, he said it's time for a, city club, for a city club to be developed in Idaho Falls. And uh, he made the case for the need uh, to discuss issues of public, uh, public concern in a nonpartisan forum. And when I got back to Boise, I wrote to Dave immediately, and I said, uh, I thought the IHC could, could help the City Club, uh, and so we have for, since the very first meeting. I came back to uh, Idaho Falls shortly thereafter to attend your first event, and, uh, which was a delightful lunch, luncheon with a uh, uh, presentation by Senator Jim McClure and Governor Cecil Andrus. Two individuals uh, who, uh, from different political parties uh, who showed how they could work together for the common good and demonstrating to everyone what civil discourse uh, was. The event set the stage for what was in store uh, for the City Club of Idaho Falls. And I commend you, I really truly commend you uh, for what this city club has done for this city and for this region of the state. 
City Club of Idaho Falls is, uh, became, soon became a real partner with the IHC in helping to bring attention to the importance of the humanities uh, for lifelong learners. And so I think I'm preaching to the choir here a little bit today uh, uh, for a greater commitment to uh, the humanities and civic education. Ed Barone, uh, Tim Hopkins, Dave Adler, Park Price, uh, Lexi French, uh, Mark Young, have, uh, they've been friends and supporters of the IHC. Uh, Ed, Lexi, and Tim serving on the IHC board, cementing that partnership. Um, and our mutual interest in civil discourse about history, literature, law, matters of, of public concern in these divisive times. David asked if I would talk just a little bit about uh, the humanities and civic education and so in particular. So uh, he and I have collaborated, as he said, on many projects over the years, numerous talks on the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, our nation's founding, and we've uh, worked together on many workshops, institutes for K-12 teachers, um, the history of the, on the history of the Cold War, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, Idaho political history, and uh, more. Lincoln, the presidencies of Lincoln and Jefferson, and more. And I've uh, seen firsthand. Uh, uh, I've seen firsthand how important these institutes are for teachers. Uh, they are hungry for these workshops, hungry for these, uh, these institutes, and we're told by teachers that the institutes are transformative uh, as they are immersed in content and uh, with some outstanding scholars. Humanities Council can uh, usually, in a typical summer teacher institute, can, uh, in a week-long week institute, uh, uh, we can accommodate about 40 teachers. But each of these teachers over the course of a year, impact uh, you know the, the lives and the learning of about a hundred students. So uh, you can see how the the, the uh, ripple effect into the education system uh, these institutes have. In our literature institutes, as Dave said, we've immersed teachers in the works of John Steinbeck, Ernest Hemingway, Willa Cather, Native American literature, environmental literature, Wallace Stegner, Mark Twain, and more. Civility requires that we try to see the world from the perspective of those uh, who may hold views opposing our own. Literature teaches us, beyond, uh, teaches this, beyond the plots and the characters of our greatest novels, literature teaches empathy. The challenge for young people today is to experience the world through another man's eyes, to walk in his shoes, and literature takes us there. And what we learn from empathy, we can apply to all walks of life. We can better understand why a man needs a loan for a dream that he has for a special project. We can better understand a rancher's perspective when we're lobbying for wilderness designation. We can better understand the need for a society to offer health care to the poor or assistance to the unemployed. I want to talk about uh, the power of empathy and use two small examples, one from literature, one from history. But uh, a few years ago, I had, uh, thanks to an IHC teacher institute, I, uh, I, I got a chance to reread Mark Twain's uh, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And it's truly thrilling. <clears throat> it was truly thrilling. Once again, after about 30 years, to be immersed in the consciousness of a young boy, Huck, who is completely confused about what is right and what is wrong in his world, in a world full of bigotry and religious self-righteousness. Huck is a boy confused by the, about the ways of the, the adult world, and he knows he is breaking the law and risking eternal damnation by protecting Jim, uh, the runaway slave, protecting Jim from capture. It's his small experience against all of society's laws of slavery, and he sees himself really as wicked and doomed because he's so set aside from, from his world. 
In the moral climax of this book, Huck knows that, that uh, according to the law, he is wrong for thinking of Jim as a full and equal human being. He see, he, he's seen Jim cry. He's seen how Jim cares for him on the river and how Jim uh, keeps him safe. And he knows Jim has emotions and desires and dreams just like the white folks. Yet he comes close to giving Jim up. But he decides in a dramatic scene in the novel that he can, that, that really still gives you goosebumps when you read. He just said, well, oh well, oh well then, I'll go to hell. And he decides to keep Jim, uh, keep hiding Jim. He does not come to this decision out of a moral superiority, but out of desperation that he's so out of line with his world, out of line with his society. The novel Huckleberry Finn was published in 1885. And, and Mark Twain, in his wry genius uh, and humor, knew exactly the moral dilemmas he wanted his readers to wrestle with. Democracy is fed by readers wondering about these big questions. The moral dilemmas so presented in great literature. I have to wonder how many readers, particularly uh, in the Jim Crow South of the 20th century, I wonder what they thought when they read Huck Finn. After all, it would be decades before the Civil Rights Act came about and the Voting Rights of 1965, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 came about. One can ask if Mark Twain's Huck Finn, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, had anything to do with the passage of those laws in the 1960s. But it brings to mind the words of Martin Luther King, who noted that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. To preserve our democracy, we need to be presented with the moral questions that great literature puts before us. And now, in this example from history. Throughout 2018, we're probably going to see a lot of uh, commemoration of various events that took place 50 years ago, in 1968. An eruptive year in American politics, a year of assassinations and war protests, uh, violent civic, civil rights uh, marches, the Tet Offensive, Quezon, uh, the Chicago Democratic Convention, the election of Richard Nixon as president. Many of us in this room in, uh, remember 1968 vividly. I was in high school in a rock and roll band. My brother was in the war. Another brother had just ex uh, was just accepted into a doctoral program at Kent State University, where two years later he would witness the clash with the Ohio National Guardsmen and the deaths of four students two years later. The night Martin Luther King was assassinated in April 1968, Senator Robert Kennedy was scheduled to deliver a campaign speech in Indianapolis. He was slated to deliver the speech to a primarily black audience in Indianapolis. Despite just learning the tragic news on his way to this campaign rally, despite just learning the, the news of King's death, Kennedy insisted he meet the crowd and break the news to them. Police warned him that they could not guarantee his safety if he followed through. But before the crowd, standing on the top of a car, Kennedy broke the news to shrieks of horror. And he quoted from memory a poem by the, by the ancient Greek poet Aeschylus that he said brought him, brought him some solace in, the, in his deep grief over his brother's death five years earlier. He recited this poem from memory or this passage from the poem. Even in our sleep, pain, which cannot forget, 
falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What national politician today would quote, would quote Greek poetry to calm an angry, potentially violent audience? What politician today would even dare to make an announcement like this uh, to an unsuspecting crowd? Yet the audience knew Robert Kennedy knew from personal experience what the, uh, the he, he truly knew the awful depth of grief. The power of empathy won through that night in Indianapolis. And while news of King's assassination sparked violent rage in other cities, things remained calm in Indianapolis that night in April 1968. The speech is on YouTube. And uh, just like everything's on YouTube these days. And so it's worth going and checking out and, and, and seeing. Stories uh, of such deep, empathetic connection, uh, again, are critical to our understanding of our history. Two summers ago, the IHC offered a week-long institute for Idaho teachers on Lyndon Johnson and the, and the Great Society. It was the 50th anniversary, and so we thought it might be time to look at the Johnson presidency. Many teachers today remember John Lyndon Johnson as little more than the war hawk who dragged the nation into Vietnam. And while Vietnam certainly was a focus of the Institute, we wanted to focus much of the week on the sheer avalanche of bipartisan legislation uh, that was passed in such a short period of time between 1964 and 1968. Medicare and Medicaid, the War on Poverty, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, immigration reform, the 1965 Wilderness Act, the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, Pell Grants that made college possible for so, uh, for so many of us, aid to the elderly, the sick, the poor, the establishment of the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities, and so much more. And in the evaluations the teachers, many teachers, uh, uh, that teachers gave to us after that institute, many of the teachers who were born in the 1980s thanked us so much for touching on history that really isn't touched on their survey courses in American history. They were particularly thankful for, their, for the presentations dealing with Senator Frank Church, a political figure they admitted knowing very little about. Our support for the humanities, for humanities teachers in Idaho, is critical. History education and civic education are no longer priorities in this country. For many of our political leaders, uh, indeed, this time, or for many of our political leaders, in th this time last year, the president tried to zero out funding for the NEH, the NEA, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Institute for Museum and Library Services, and other cultural agencies. And I'm happy to say <clears throat> the humanities community across the country is so very grateful to our own Congressman Mike Simpson who saw the folly in that proposal and worked and is still working to preserve our work here in Idaho and the work of the National Endowment for the Humanities. It is our it, at our nation's peril to neglect the humanities further. It is worth noting that the rise of divisive, polarized politics in recent history charts with the decline in the nation's attention to civic education. In our na national effort to increase math and science education, we made it an either-or choice, as if we could have either the humanities or science, and the humanities have been getting short shrift. Today, you can graduate from an Idaho university and never take a college-level uh, course in history, never take a class in Western civilization, 
Never take a class in the founding of the nation or a class in the principles of democracy. It is not just, uh, not just an Idaho trend, but a national one. Recent survey of the American Council of, of Trustees and Alumni of over 1,100 liberal arts colleges and universities found that only 18% of colleges and universities require students to take even one course in American history or government for graduation. The same study tested basic historical knowledge among graduating seniors of the 55 top-ranked colleges and universities in the U.S. And after, after four years of study, the majority, quote, failed to identify the significance of Valley Forge, key words from the Gettysburg Address, or even basic facts about the Voting Rights Act. In their survey of college graduates asking questions from an old uh, civics uh, curriculum, only 20% of graduates could identify James Madison as the father of the Constitution, and most thought it was written by Thomas Jefferson. So I'm co quoting here, college grad graduates were uncertain about the length of the terms, uh, terms of office for U.S. senators and US, uh, members of the U.S. House of Representatives. 40% of college graduates did not know that it was Congress and not the president that had the constitutional power to declare war. Nearly 10% thought TV's Judge Judy was a member of the Supreme Court. <laughs> Less than 20% of American colleges, uh, college graduates could identify uh, the effect of the Emancipation Proclamation. Less than 50% could identify George Washington as, an, as the American general at the Battle of Yorktown. And only 42% knew that the Battle of the Bulge occurred in World War II. A 2014 survey, and these surveys about civic education are all over the internet right now. You can go and pick what, whichever one you want. The 2014 survey revealed that a third of college graduates were unaware that FDR had anything to do with the New Deal. The 2015 survey found that a third of college graduates could not identify the proper time of the Civil War within a 20-year time frame. The history of America is inter intertwined with the history of our Constitution. How are young people today to react about news, a news story, for example, about the First Amendment or the Second Amendment if they don't know those amendments? How, how are they to know about the issue of, say, judicial races uh, becoming a little bit more partisan, uh, elected and, and a little bit more partisan, and the focus of big money? and the fear that judges could uh, make decisions based on what is more popular in the next election rather than what should be the law. Countless polls over the last 20 years reveal the ignorance of history, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights among college educated about uh, some of the most basic principles of democracy. Some of you may recall comedian Jay Leno's jaywalking episodes where he interviewed men and women on the street about seemingly simple questions about who's the vice president and uh, who is the secretary of state and about uh, issues about founding, uh, our nation's founding and how government works. You can see this all on YouTube too. Um, and it's, it's, it's very entertaining if, you don't, uh, if you're not too sad to watch it. There are exceptions, of course, some exceptional teachers in this country, exceptional teachers here in Idaho Falls, like uh, Holly Karcher, who for years has taken her students to win championships on their knowledge of the Constitution, and Jim Francis, uh, recognized by the IHC for his outstanding uh, teaching, and uh, Deborah Woodard, honored by the City Club, uh, just last month. And there are many outstanding teachers here in Idaho who have benefited from IHC institutes and workshops offered by the poorly funded We the People program. Their students are undoubtedly on our side about the need for greater commitment uh, to the humanities and civic education. 
Without a greater commitment to civics uh, classes, without uh, humanities classes being a priority for our state and our nation, for our colleges and universities, how are we ever going to make a case for the engagement of young people in our political system? And how do we, how do we talk about contemporary issues in the classroom with our students, such as the recent Alabama election for Senate between Roy Moore and Doug Jones? Teachers are often reluctant to talk about contemporary politics in the classroom for fear that parents might uh, hear the teachers are swear, uh, they're swaying their too young to vote children toward a political agenda. But shouldn't teachers talk about, talk with their students about a candidate's claim that this nation would be better off without any amendments past the Tenth Amendment? I mean, as Roy. Uh, Moore claimed, what a teaching moment this is. Currently, in an effort to encourage high school students to go on to college, state of Idaho is allowing students a dual credit option for taking classes in high school that also satisfy college credit. More often than not, the courses taken in and as dual credit or humanities classes in history and government. The intention of the, of the option is to give students a leg up on, on college and perhaps encourage uh, more students to attend college. And this is a, this is a good thing. <clears throat> but are we, doing, are we doing them any favor? Are we doing students any favor? Earning a college degree that no, uh, that that no re that requires no further t uh, courses. Oh, thank you. In philosophy, ethics, civics, or the humanities, we should never expect that the classes students take in high school are all they need for the rest of their lives when it comes to civics, or that a high school class is as rigorous as those taken in college. Civic education equips students to become voters, to become participants in the electoral system, to become conversant in political issues. These days, in lieu of civic education, there is also an emphasis on requiring college students to perform some amount of community service, which is all well and good. But community sh service should not be a substitute for classes in American government. Uh, American government and history and other humanities courses. Civic education and community service are not the same thing. In the spring of 2017, the City Club of Boise hosted a civility summit, a two-day workshop that I attended along with many political leaders leaders of uh, cultural organizations, civic leaders, uh, newspaper and broadcast uh, journalists, and more. I know Mark uh, Young was there, as was your mayor, uh, uh, Mayor Casper, and, uh, and probably some others from Idaho Falls. At the end of the two days, participants uh, uh, assessed our deliberations and identified three priority items to push forward as necessary objectives for a civil Idaho. One objective, one objective was that uh, journalists and state legislators create opportunities to get together more often to get to know each other as people and not as adversaries, so as to break down fears by legislators toward journalists as antagonists. Another objective was to revive our commitment to civic education in high schools and in college. No small task. And a third objective was to establish city clubs in more Idaho cities in the next few years and perhaps get city clubs around the state to occasionally work together on some common issues and programs. Good news since uh, that uh, civility summit is that the city club of Twin Falls uh, is getting, getting on its feet 
and we'll be holding its second meeting next week when they host a moderated debate with several Republican gubernatorial candidates for governor. I'd like to see a city club established in Coeur d'Alene or another city in the north. We take small steps and we keep our message moving forward that you are doing, that what, what you are doing with the City Club of Idaho Falls is a model for the rest of the state, even more so than the City Club of Boise. You are a smaller community, you have far fewer resources uh, than the seat of state government and Boise State University. You inspired the city of Twin Falls to move forward on a plan and perhaps we can get another city club moving in the northern Idaho. If change in our divisive politics is going to come, it's going to, it's going to take the work of groups like this. And state humanities councils across the country and organizations like the Aturas Institute and more great teachers to lead our advocacy. We can accurately say the decline, or can we ac accurately say, the decline of uh, civil discourse is the direct result of the decline of civic education and the study of the humanities in public schools and colleges? Probably not. But if the decline in civility and crassness in our politics is being seen as normal by young people, it's not too hard to imagine what, the, what this portends for democracy. The late Texas Congresswoman Barbara Jordan once said, if society today allows wrongs to go unchallenged, the impression is created that those wrongs have the approval of the majority. We cannot let the decline in, civil, in civility and the crass and, and bullying of our daily politics to go unchallenged. We need more reason and a little less passion to chart our way forward. And I think the humanities can help us chart that way. Thanks. Rick, thanks so much for that very insightful, detailed, and powerful essay on the importance of the humanities to American democracy. Uh, you speak in a very learned way and with passion based on your own reason. We thank you for that. We've got a number of fine questions for you, which is no surprise coming from a group like this, which cares passionately about civic education and civil discourse. Um, in the last year or so, uh, many Americans have noted the rise of vulgarity, as you indicated, uh, in our governmental politics, uh, that crassness has become the norm, that it's displaced civility in Washington. Uh, share with us for a second some thoughts if this path is the path we travel for more than a short time. What happens to our institutions? What happens to democratic norms? What happens to American participation in politics? And what happens to our politics if this path that we're traveling continues? Oh, big question, Dave. I, I, um, I can't, again, I can't help but think uh, the, the, the uh, how young people particularly who are growing up now Think of this as normal. Tweeting is normal for most people, but it's our first time dealing with a tweeting president who is dealing with uh, who is dealing with foreign policy through tweets. It's a so it is it is a definite challenge. But the 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 sad part of it is the uh, the crassness of the uh, of uh, how uh, political leaders treat each other. Uh, how they refer to each other, 
And and uh, I, I you know I have no answer for this because I don't you don't we we have no idea where it could possibly go, what impact it's eventually going to have, and what it what's going to mean for for future political rhetoric. I'd like to think that uh, that uh, this too will pass, but uh, that's I, I I just don't I just don't know if that uh, is the is going to be the case. Uh, we, this is we've introduced something new, and uh, and things go unchallenged day after day after day, and I I don't know how long it can uh, what really truly impact it's going to have. Uh, Now, here's a hypothetical. So you're sitting in Washington, D.C. Imagine you're there in the nation's capital, and in your small room of important leaders, a seminar size, you have the President of the United States, you have leaders of both parties, and you have the opportunity to send a message to them about the importance of humanities in the United States. What two or three things do you want to stress to them? Well, the the thing about the the thing about civic education is that it's it's you know you can't argue against it. You can't you can't argue against it. And anybody you talk to or any political leader will lament the fact that uh, civic education is in a poor state. Um, but but the but here we here we are looking at a couple of decades of surveys. And uh, nothing's changed. It's uh, and it's actually getting uh, it's actually getting a little worse. So, um, it you know, at civic education, I mean, reintroducing civics, uh, civic education to the high schools as vigorously as it used to be, that's a tall order. Um, we can educate teachers. As as uh, as as well as we can, but this is a uh, this is a major major effort that's going to take a lot of money. It's like this is a this is a cultural infrastructure for the uh, for the nation, and that we have to attend to, and and we can't uh, we can't attend to this uh, this cultural infrastructure without uh, some support for the. For uh, education, when we're cutting, uh, when we're cutting taxes, and we're cutting, uh, you know, as anyone knows, if you want to support infrastructure, you're going to have to put a little money into it. And here we are, uh, here we are, trimming, drastically trimming um, funds that could go to to uh, programs that are very much needed. And uh, but it's going to take it's going to take a huge uh, commitment to uh, to move forward that way. You mentioned the decline in in history education uh, as a companion to the decline of uh, of civic education, and when you when you noted uh, the the ignorance of so many Americans about these great historic moments, these great historic documents that have defined our nation. It would suggest that, in fact, the nature of America today in its political dialogue is bereft of historical uh, education and uh, bereft of the values that history can provide in elevating our discourse. If there are fewer and fewer people who have knowledge of those great historical moments, uh, the drafting of the Constitution, the important speeches given by FDR or even Bobby Kennedy, as you noted, then how can we hope to elevate the discourse in this country so as to hold government accountable? Well, we have to have a, a playing field where we can discuss this. And uh, in order to discuss it, we need, you need to be educated to discuss it. Um, you know, the criticism, the criticism of civic education among, among its big critics, is that, uh, is that civic education is just, uh, uh, it's just American, Americanism gone awry, that uh, here we are, uh, we, all, we all just want to, uh, uh, you know, read about the, uh, 
the great white fathers, the great white founding fathers who created this this uh, nation, and we all know the great white fathers are the uh, were slaveholders and and whatnot, and so some, the critics of of civic education are are fearful that uh, you know this really doesn't give us the whole picture. That uh, granted, uh, the history of this nation is tied together so closely with the history of the Constitution. Um, every major event has some tie to the, uh, to, to the Constitution. And so um, it's, it, it's going to take a, uh, <laughs> it's going to take a, a huge effort uh, to get people on a, on, a, on a playing field where they feel uh, adequately informed to even discuss issues of public concern. Uh, the problem of the decline in the appreciation of education in this country has in many ways, according to uh, commentators, mirrored the rise of fundamentalist politics and fundamentalist religions in the market square of American politics. Uh, now, that's a sensitive issue. Uh, what is your view on how religion ought to be taught in schools within the sphere of civic education? Well, you know, I was taught by nuns, you know. <laughs> so, so well, that explains <laughs> everything, Dan, I see now. I was taught by Catholic nuns in my, in my elementary years. And so, you know, when we pledged allegiance to the flag, we also pledged allegiance to the cross. We had separate uh, pledges of allegiance. Um, that was uh, that was a that was a given, and then I moved to public schools, and uh, and it was always assumed that you know there's a separation of church and state. Well, you know, even in a tax bill that just passes, we can approve churches that uh, can now advocate for political candidates stuffed in a tax bill. I mean, this is something that comes right out of, uh, you know, the founding, that we should have a separation of church and state. And yet, where does it, how does it come to us? In a tax bill. Um, obviously, we didn't have time before the passage of that bill for any discussion. It was, uh, it was passed on a, on a partisan vote. Um, and it was, and before anybody could even read the bill, um, this is uh, th this kind of meddling into uh, uh, issues that affect our constitution. This is uh, this is quite serious, and we're not going to see the ramifications of this for God knows how long. You know, for for at some point in the future, uh, uh, this is going to this is going to have a ripple effect in our politics for years and years to come. You, you mentioned that particular clause that permits now churches to engage in political advocacy, which, as you point out, represents an affront to the Founding Fathers' commitment to separation of church and state, and there will be challenges to that in the courts of law. That reminds me of an earlier remark you made about the concern uh, to maintain an independent judiciary and how important that is to uh, the maintenance of our democracy and the Constitution. Would you talk about that a little bit more, please? Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's clear that uh, judicial races are becoming a little bit more political. Big money is pouring into, big money is pouring into these races. And the fear is, um, the fear is, that judges could, you know, who knows, at some point, in order to get elected, could possibly make decisions, judicial decisions, um, based on what is politically, more politically acceptable. Um, this is a, uh, you know, not, not all uh, states in the nation elect um, members of their courts, their Supreme Courts. But those who do, that those states that do, it's clear that the, that the races are becoming more, more political. And uh, at some point, you know, it's, uh, you're going to have debates 
These are supposed to be nonpartisan races, but uh, it's only a matter of time before uh, huge uh, money is going to come in to elect uh, people that uh, people with the money want to be um, members of their Supreme Courts. I don't know, you know, how you get around this. Um, But telling people that it's happening is a very important thing. And telling telling students that it is something that they should be concerned about is is something that, you know, they should be concerned about. Uh, This fear of talking about things like this in the classroom is uh, for fear that it might be considered uh, politicizing, you know, high school education or whatever. Uh, I, I, I mean, th- these are teaching moments that we need to bring to the attention of, of us so that we can talk about this. Uh, just breaking from this line of thought for a second, we have a couple of, of members of our audience who would like you to talk, please, a little bit about the spring speaker uh, for oh. the Ida- annual Idaho Humanities Council lecture held here on April 12th. Yes, April 12th, uh, we have a, uh, the IHC has a special uh, uh, special initiative for 2018, and we call it Democracy and the Informed Citizen. And we're looking, to, we, have, we have speaker, we have events now in Idaho Falls, in Twin Falls, in Boise, and in Coeur d'Alene. And we're, we're tying all of these, the, these uh, lectures together under uh, one common theme dealing with journalism, mostly Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists, dealing with the future of journalism, the questions of the future of journalism, the, uh, the idea of fake news. So on the 12th of, of April, we're bringing uh, James B. Stewart, uh, a New York Times columnist, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times columnist to, to speak about uh, fake news. He's written a book called Tangled Webs about uh, about uh, the lying that is going on between people from Martha Stewart to to uh, <laughs> to members of Congress to uh, to Bernie Madoff. And the impact that this lying and this uh, and uh, that fake news has on our, our political uh, landscape. So, so uh, we are bringing to Twin Falls, uh, Pulitzer Prize, two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, political cartoonist Jack Oman, who is uh, going to talk about how he uh, he uses his cartoons to interpret the news of the day. And uh, in Boise, we're bringing uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Anna Quinlan. Um, but, but all of the events will be tied together under this theme of democracy and the informed citizen to give it some, uh, some heft, I guess. Some heft, some much-needed heft. And you mentioned several times about the importance of education to democracy, and you alluded to the fact that the Founding Fathers believed that our system would rise or fall on having an informed citizenry. What is your view about the ongoing assault on the press uh, by various governmental officials uh, and members of the public? Well, I mean, just this week we heard that there's president wants to uh, strengthen libel laws uh, so that uh, perhaps uh, the press can be reined in. Um, this is, uh, this is, uh, this is, un, you know, pretty, you know, this is, this is new territory to be going. Um, it's, uh, it, it, the, you know, it's uh, it, it's hard to uh, to challenge some of these things because uh, the landscape, the argument changes every day. If something, if a report comes out about uh, about uh, collusion or the possibility of collusion, it's con- immediately considered or lambasted as uh, is fake um, by whoever wants to say it's fake. Um, you know, the, the idea, we need to, uh, where else other than classroom are, go, are we going to be able to talk about what's fake and what isn't? 
it seems like the civic education class is the, is the place where we can talk about, you know, investigating, you know, finding out how do you determine what's, you know, what is fake on the Internet and what is real. Um, suddenly, these kinds of things are falling with it, you know, in the lap of teachers to somehow figure out, you know, how they're going to deal with this. I have a brother who is, uh, believes every, every uh, political conspiracy known to man. <laughs> From 9-11 to, to uh, uh, you know, whatever, the, land, the moon landing, um, former colonel in the military. And yet, and yet uh, when we get together and, uh, and discuss politics, which we, mostly we try to avoid anymore, sometimes, you know, some, some facts come out that uh, God knows where they came from, and, and that kind of interrupts the conversation because they are so absurd. But, you know, hey, it's on the Internet. We all have brothers like that, <laughs> let me just tell you. So, Rick, in the last few minutes before we exhaust our time together, uh, share with us a little bit more of your biography simply by telling us what writers inspired you, who helped to... Uh, who helped to fill your your field of dreams uh, from the time you were a young boy in Massachusetts to the time you've arrived in Idaho? Well, um, I, uh, I I actually grew up in Pennsylvania and uh, and uh, went to a little college, in Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania. Um, I like to uh, uh, think about that because. Um, when I was when I was growing up and when I was going to school, we had uh, I never had a anybody but a full professor teaching me in a classroom. I didn't have any teach. There were no teaching a, uh, teaching assistants. There were no grad I had no grad assistants. I went to a small little unknown college in Pennsylvania, and yet I would I could teach. I could have a class with three of us learning. Uh, you know, studying Mark Twain. I could learn literary criticism with about six of us. I, I learned, uh, I, I had philosophy classes with maybe 12. And it's very hard not to do the reading when you show up for a class that small. <laughs> but at the same time, I, uh, I guess uh, when I wanted, when I was growing up, I, I, Learn, I, I read, I guess the big inspiration for me was Jack Kerouac's On the Road. And when I read a Jack Kerouac's On the Road, published in 1957, all I wanted to do was come west. Never been west of Chicago. So as soon as I got, as soon as I graduated, I was living in Massachusetts with my wife, and we decided, let's just go west. So I, so it was more than a reading experience. It was a life-changing book in many ways. Mm. Um, the poet Walt Whitman, of course, and, and of Mark Twain, of course, and uh, the Beat Generation poets and, uh, uh, were, the, were, the, were the inspiration for me uh, to really think larger, think bigger, and, uh, and to uh, act on my interests. So uh, I, I, I think of among the literary, uh, my literary uh, iconic authors, Hemingway, Steinbeck, um, and then uh, the poet Walt Whitman, mm -hmm. Jack Kerouac, all poet, poets, writers that I can still go back to and read today. Yeah, that's terrific. Rick, we can't thank you enough for uh, driving over here uh, from Boise. We blame you for bringing this snow. Uh, but uh, we want to say how much we appreciate your powerful support for the City Club of Idaho Falls, for city clubs around uh, the state of Idaho, and the way you've championed the humanities, and to share in a farewell address, so to speak, uh, your thoughts about the future of, of American democracy if we ignore 
the importance of the humanities. Uh, you've been a good friend to all of us. The City Club is going to give you, of course, a golden cup <laughs> so that you can enjoy coffee. And we have a uh, the brand new Ron Chernow biography as a token of Ulysses S. Oh, Grant, as wow, a token great. of our appreciation, because we know that as you ride off into retirement, you have a little more time for reading. Uh, but you should all know, I'm very happy to say that Rick Ardinger is the newest member of the Board of Directors of the Altouris Institute. We're going to keep you working. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's give Rick a wonderful round of applause. Thank you. An audio archive of all past City Club forums is available at ifcityclub.com forums. Visit ifcityclub.com for information about upcoming programs. The next City Club of Idaho Falls Forum takes place on Friday, February 23rd, and features Dr. Thomas L. Les Purse on reweaving the social fabric of America. Please RSVP by noon on Tuesday, February 20th.